0: Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities.
1: You talk about something called the soul's high adventure. Man, this. Born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. The common vocabulary
0: of rituals and symbols. This let you know where you are.
1: Such a, such a hero has done so-and-so, and so there. is your model.
0: What am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. You got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it? You make it work for
1: you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to to follow it.
0: Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Hi, before we get into this conversation, I want to let you know about something I've been working on for a while and which is now available for free on my website. It's a piece called Myth for Modern Men, A Letter to My Son. Again, you can download this for free on my website, explorerpoet.com. I wrote this letter to provide a guide which my son can reference during his own individuation quest, kind of like a map for growing up, maturing, and finding his way in this chaotic world. Today, perhaps more than ever, the world needs men who are balanced, aware, emotionally intelligent, and driven to become whole individuals who can contribute to families, communities, and society in a healthy way. Rather than encourage the process of self-discovery, modern institutions often force men into compliance or predetermined roles. Society seldom encourages young men to explore their values nor think critically, and they don't teach necessary truths about the self, myth, psychology, emotions, fulfillment, education, money, careers, spirituality, relationships, or sex. In Myth for Modern Men, I tackled these topics and many more in a manner that I hope is clear and digestible. Again, you can download Myth for Modern Men for free by visiting my website, ExplorerPoet.com. Okay, thanks, and please enjoy this conversation. My guest today is Maria Souza, who is a mythologist, author, educator, mentor, and creator of the Women in Mythology podcast. Maria received her postgraduate degrees in ecology and spirituality from Shoemaker College and an advanced training certificate in applied mythology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She is the author of Wild Daughters, a mythopoetic work that offers inspiration for girls and women who are searching for their own unique power. Maria has a passion and deep understanding for myth and symbols, particularly in how they relate to modern women. I found her to be insightful and enlightening, and her energy was contagious. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Maria, and I hope you do as well. Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Yeah, of course. I came across, as I was saying to you before, I came across your work first through your Women in Mythology podcast, which I think is a a fantastic piece of uh, analysis, but also just a you do it in such a fun way with the storytelling in some of the, in some of the episodes, and then breaking down the characters and the symbols and, uh, I just, I think your podcast is fantastic, but you're also, you know, you do all sorts of things related to mythology and the study of myth, um, from, from your podcast to your education, to even writing, writing your own book and, uh, even doing mentoring in the space. So just to kick this all off, I'm just curious from, from your, your life, your experience, what is it that drew you towards myth and, and why has myth stood out to you so much?
1: Well, the way I see myth is that myth amplify and uh, myth inflate our personal lives. It gives us a roadmap. And I think that's what brought me to myth and made me so passionate about myth. There was, I think early twenties is always a troubled time for most people. And uh, for me, it was, uh, especially being a woman and trying to figure out a path that was fulfilling, that was rewarding, Uh, Yet, a path that was a bit, I would say, outside the mainstream, outside the norm. I was raised in Brazil. There were expectations, cultural expectations um, around my life as a woman specifically. And uh, METHA helped me, I think, fulfill some of the, the holes Um, face some of the fears I had, give me courage. It was around the same age I left Brazil as well to do my master's and then work abroad, and life kind of carried itself from there. So myth just really helped me develop myself. It actually came first as a personal interest until I was able to build bridges and become a professional interest.
0: Right, yeah. Do you... Uh, I just want to like dig a little bit deeper into that, because did you come across myth as uh, first as just stories that you heard, fairy tale type stories? Or was this uh, was it kind of a religious structure uh, that that first introduced you to myth?
1: Well, in my childhood, I think where I was introduced to stories and fairy tales, like most people are, but they were given to me very much as the Disney princesses of fairy tales, the story of Adam and Eve, you know, and within a, a Christian concept. And no one ever talked to me about its clinical or academic applications. No one talked about the value that they had, actually, what they meant, the symbolism, the potential that was there. These were just little stories for children, let's say, especially the Disney fairy tales. Um, And then I studied, I was trained as a historian um, in university. So then I studied a lot of Greek mythology, some um, Mesopotamian mythology, but it was also given to us at the time um, as almost like stories of the dead, stories that have lost and there are, There's no contemporary application. It was really looking at the past for the past. And that didn't seem to help, right? That doesn't actually gives us any tools, any resources. It can be interesting, but um, it doesn't relate to my contemporary life. And then was later on when I was doing my master's that I started to see these stories um, and these tales, as oh, they are actually dictating our behavior today. They are problematizing our behavior. They are giving us tools for my life today. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, it's, if it's a girl entering a forest or um, a, a prince battling and slaying a dragon. There is a connection here. I also worked um, in the Amazon when I was in Brazil. And during that time, I saw fairy tales. Uh, I apologize. I saw myths and folklore in a different way. But it was within an indigenous primitive society. So again, I was there was a separation there for me. I thought, oh, these myths are alive for them and problematizing their behavior and uh, keeping their kind of scope of knowledge alive. Um, but what can they teach me? I, I, I was struggling to make that step. And then it was only through my master's. And you might know this because I talk a lot about him as well. Um, but Martin Shaw, who's a fantastic mythologist, I had the privilege of studying with him in person for two years. And he's the one who kind of build that bridge. And I had that aha moment. And I was like, oh, so all these myths and all these stories, they're actually speaking to my journey. And then I started making those connections.
0: Right. That's, that's fascinating. So initially it was just, it was almost just the stories that were interesting. Uh, but I can see how, I can see how, coming from a culture, whether it's just like a societal culture, a national culture, or coming from a religious culture, stories get, stories get phrased in certain ways or they get put into certain buckets where if it's a fairy tale, it's, it's like a fun fantasy story for children. And then if it's, you know, you mentioned Adam and Eve from the Bible, uh, given given the, the world that I grew up in was very religious. And so that story and all the other stories that follow it in the Bible, are very literal. And so it almost, it's almost as if that's history, like a physical history mm-hmm. that happened. Um, but it takes a lot, I think it takes a lot for, for people to kind of get past that. There's like this bridge they have to cross to then be able to see these as not just, as not just stories for children and also not just some historical thing that happened, but something that's alive and that's influencing the world today I almost think about it as, you know, we have this idea of biological evolution where we have genes that slowly change over time to, to get us to where we are today. And myth myth or stories seem to be the same thing. They're just slowly changing over time to to get us to where we are today. So when we look at, you know, for example, the story of Adam and Eve I see I see like a real connection directly back to even f- stories that were further back, you know, Osiris and Isis. And by by seeing if you can see that connection to the past and you can feel it in the future, you realize that there's some kind of realization that these stories have been kind of guiding us all along and even if we're not aware of it today, these myths, these stories are still present and still Influence, influencing us, impacting us uh, in our lives today, both individually and then also as a as a greater society.
1: Absolutely. Um, actually, as you mentioned, Adam and Eve as well, um, I have a short course on demand that's available. It's called Reclaiming Eve. And it's all about seeing Eve and the story of Adam and Eve in a different way, because as you were saying, these stories impact us individually and collectively. And the story of Adam and Eve, unfortunately, impacts especially women um, in, a, in a way that doesn't sustain our unique qualities, doesn't sustain emancipation, liberation. Um, it, it tends to impact us in a very different way, in a way that we women are seen as sinful, as uh, um, someone we cannot trust as well, as someone connected to evil, Uh, someone who it's going to drag us to hell you know and uh, I in this workshop we explain a lot of the symbols there the symbol of the serpent of the tree of the garden Um, and then we look into Eve not in search for that kind of sinful fruit but in search of consciousness wanting to know she is naked you know, she wants consciousness and seeing that as an impulse of the feminine, seeing curiosity, not as something um, to be, um, to be repressed, but seeing curiosity as something to actually be followed, curiosity related to instinct, to conscious, to intuition. So it's very powerful. And I think that's also where my work touches on a lot, which are the stories that we have inherited, received through mainstream media like Disney, or through religion like Adam and Eve, through history as well. So stories that, um, for example, like Medusa's story, uh, and which and which from these stories, which are the stories that emancipate, which are the stories that give us power and courage and hope, and helps us see us, see ourselves as you know wonderful beautiful creatures and beings and which are the stories that actually hold us back and how can we transform the stories that hold us back or perhaps let go, you know, bring new stories in, um, which are the stories that we should hold and we should carry to help us through life. So my work has a lot to do with that as well nowadays.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it was beautiful the way you said that, the, the stories that we should carry with us and that will help us through our lives. Because I, If you, I've, I've discovered that if you spend enough time thinking about stories, thinking about myth, you come to realize that pretty much everything is a myth, uh, pretty much everything. And so at some point you have to, as an adult, you have to decide which stories are going to be important to you, which ones you're going to accept and which ones you're going to let go of, or which ones like you were saying, you're going to alter. But it really does seem like if you want to be. I don't like the word control, but if you just want to be like aware, if you, if you want to be conscious, as you were saying, like the the story of Adam and Eve is really about the desire to be conscious and to be curious about the world. If you really want to achieve that, that, that goal or that aim, then at some point you have to peel away all the stories that are influencing you or at least step back from them and have a chance to look at them and how they impact you and how you see yourself. As a, as a character or a part of that story. And at some point you, you're gonna realize that everything's a story. You know, like <laughs> money's a story and power's a story and patriotism's a story and faith is, in a religious sense, is a story. And so uh, it's a big part of co- becoming conscious in my in my experience or in my perspective is is doing that, is acknowledging what the stories are and then doing what you're saying. Either, either you accept them you alter them or you have to you have to let them go
1: yes i love that now resignifying the stories when it comes to adam and eve and christianity honestly it's not even an old story it's 2000 years and when we look at humanity we are working with stories far more old um, we're receiving things, and um, the interesting thing about Adam and Eve, just bringing us kind of to close that subject as well, is what we see as a well. What I do is, as a comparative mythology, understand what are all the symbols coming from, because nothing of that story is true. And I'm sorry, it's new. Nothing of that story is new. All those symbols appear in similar ways in other tales. You know, so we look into that, and um, hopefully support women into transforming things that are deep within them.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I agree. I think I, well, I want to talk to you about symbols, but before we do that, I want to go back to this idea that you brought up and we don't have to talk about it in terms of Adam and Eve, but you said that the story is really about Eve's desire to become conscious. And when I think about the evolution of myth, the evolution of like the whole story for all of humankind, it almost seems as if it's just slowly moving us towards a greater level of consciousness, both as individuals, but also as a, as a society. And I talk about this a lot on the podcast, and so this isn't something necessarily new for my listeners. But the the world being how it is, split between an Eastern and a Western story, the way it kind of went. The stories the story is uh is interesting because you know between the the east and the west, the Buddha and the Jesus stories, they're very similar. I'm sure you could see how the, the two stories are similar between say Adam and Eve and the the rise of the Buddha. But at the same time it goes to it goes back to something you were saying about interpretation and how you interpret the story and the meaning that you pull from the story. And in our in our Western world, The meaning that we've eventually arrived at is that we're all individuals and that we all need to be individuals. And it seems as if our world is moving, at least the Western world is moving further and further along that trajectory of individuation. And from from that perspective alone, it seems as if these stories are trying to push us as a species towards a greater level of consciousness and like a, a greater level of awareness not necessarily again so that we can have control but just or or maybe at some point there's like a level of control that we're supposed to achieve but i'm just curious uh from your perspective when you talk about consciousness it's a tricky question but but you know what is what is consciousness and how close to it are we actually getting with these stories
1: um hopefully a little bit more conscious of at least our lives. Um, I I feel that I am a little bit more conscious over my life and my dreams and my desires and what I want and not just more conscious, but I feel also more capable of asking for it, of working towards it, um, of dismantling a little bit of um, the things that hold me back you know, traumas, um, any kind of insecurity as well. So I think that really helps. I wanted to touch on individuation that you mentioned and uh, to see that in Adam and Eve, we really look into the symbolism of the tree. The tree is a symbol of individuation, having the roots in the underworld, having the trunk in our world, and then um, the leaves and branches in this kind of upper world. And going through the tree, the tree and many things, you also mentioned Buddha, is related to many stories and um, Norse mythology. You have it over the nine worlds, the tree uh, with the Buddha, Buddha was enlightened under the tree and uh, the tree. It's very much related to the feminine every time as well that someone is going to uh, talk about perhaps, I don't know, Mother Earth or something of the earth in that way, the tree tends to be a symbol that is an image that is present. The tree related to the feminine is related to renewal. It's related to the cycles as well, having that winter, having that summer, times of giving, times to go within, very much similar to the cycles of women, depending on the stage of her life through, for example, related to menstruation as well. The tree, and then we go into a fruit tree, A flowering tree, it has also this ability to bloom, to give. that It gives in generosity. It gives in abundance as well. Because a fruit tree has a seed, um, the fruit has a seed, there is also this idea of infinity as well. The seed falls into the ground and new trees come from it. So there is this whole... Connection of symbolism between tree and feminine and the cycles of the feminine. So Eve wanting to enter a wild communion with the tree by eating the fruit. How can that, to stop a woman to communing with a wild tree, it's to stop a woman to entering in touch with her own cycles, you know, through her own process of individuation um, The fruit itself is just a beautiful symbol. Now, most of the time, the fruit is already compared to um, the body of a woman, the abundance, and not here, a body of a woman that we see in magazines today, the body of a woman like the Venus of Willendorf, that old body, a body that expresses fertility, that expresses abundance. It has the fruit, water, it has earth in it. And it tastes divine on top of that. So it has its time of maturity as well. It's If you grab the fruit too early, it is not ready. Very much like the woman. The woman, it's ready. It's, it has her cycle of maturity. So to say a woman, to say it's sinful to, have to eat the fruit, to come closer to the tree, it's, in my opinion, really absurd. know, it's stopping us from coming close. Besides the whole idea and separation between us and the natural world, of course, as well. Um, and then you have the serpent kind of playing in that image. Now, the whole conversation between serpent Eve and the tree being present there. The serpent is related to the spiritual world, is related to healing. Um, until today, the medical, like the medicine scientific symbol has a serpent there. And uh, in the Bible, just a little kind of final thing, I don't want to go too much on it, otherwise I'll be giving you the workshop here and we'll never get back to our conversation. But um, in the Bible, there's this sentence from God when he's punishing everyone, punishing Eve, punishing Adam and punishing the serpent. So he punishes Adam, By saying, you will suffer with your work. No, you will have to work all the days of your life. And it's going to be a painful experience, basically. Which I think it frames a lot of how we relate to work and how our society relates to work. As well as something painful. As something, you know, that um, robs the soul in many ways. Instead of something that enhances soul and brings passion and... um, and gifts to all. To Eve, it says, you will suffer in childbirth. You will have pain in childbirth. And what I love now about the movement of women who are going through unmedicated birth, not advocating for that necessarily, but just this idea of women standing in their power and say, you know what, bring it on. I can do it. Is that my punishment? Don't worry, that's fine. I am up for it. I want it. You know, I want to feel the full extent of my power and capability. And then to the serpent, it says, "You of all kind of animals, wild animals, you will now crawl. And uh, if this, the punishment for the serpent is to crawl, it leaves us with this kind of thought and image of what was it doing before? Was it flying? Was it swimming? It wasn't crawling, right, if the punishment is crawling. And then it leaves us with the image of the dragon that flies and swims. And we enter a whole new world of symbolism, not only related to the serpent there, but also to the dragon. So we kind of dive in deeper and deeper into stories, into myths, into comparative mythology there. Well, very passionate about this. I'll just stop here.
0: No, I love it. Uh, I I love to see the passion because it's, it's so fascinating to me. I I love the way you can take one idea, one symbol, and then, you know, spread it through so many connective pieces. There's so much you just shared. And so I, I have to think a second about where to start, um. The first, yeah, the symbology is just fascinating because obviously these ideas came, like you were saying, well before the story of Adam and Eve was written down in the Bible. So obviously our, our ancient ancestors knew about trees and they knew about fruit. They knew about snakes on the ground and they knew about the dangers. Um, I actually want to sit here a little bit longer. I know you you said, okay, uh, you, you, uh, you said you got passionate and you, you're like, okay, I got it out. I kind of want to sit here a little bit longer and and stick with it because uh, I love the symbology. And um, if I'm being honest, I don't think I've thought about it as, like obviously I haven't thought about it as much as you from a feminine or a woman's perspective, um, but I, I want to kind of sit here in that space with you. And, and when I think about the idea of this story representing Representing us, I guess we're going to talk about Adam and Eve today. Um, when we when we uh, think about this story representing us, and you were talking about the punishment for man being that they would work, and the punishment for woman that they would have childbirth. Uh, if you look at the world today, you know we 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 moved from this place where the world just provided for us. There were trees. That just fruited and provided for us. So, if you if you look from a biological perspective at our nearest re, our nearest genetic relatives, the being chimpanzees or bonobos uh, in in the African jungles, they don't work. They just they just have trees that fruit and provide for them like a mother would, and um, and I think that's where obviously that's that's got to have some kind of a connection to this this uh mother that this mother image that you're talking about that's pregnant, you know, this w- image of a woman who's pregnant and just provides and the earth provides for us that way. but then we moved into this strange world that we live in today where we created cities and we created jobs. even way back then, you know in in ancient times, the world became this place where people had occupations, we had this separation of duties. And the interesting thing about it is that when you're going about all these duties, uh, trying to run a city, trying to run a state, the if a woman's if a woman was pregnant, if a woman was caring for children, then this became something that men took upon themselves. And so it ties to that idea of like men's curse is the work that they have to do. And the woman's curse is, is that they have to bear children. I think you're right, though, to think about it as if a woman's if a woman looks at it in a in a proper perspective, it's not really a curse. It's what you were, you know, it's it's how you were born. It's like it's who you are. And I think that there's a lot of women out there who, becoming conscious and choosing what they want for themselves, are actually wanting to be mothers rather than to go and participate in some kind of competitive environment with a bunch of men. but at the same time, these men can look at it as, "Hey, this doesn't have to be a curse either. We, work doesn't have to be some kind of a burden." I understand people. You know, I've been there in in a world where you have to provide for a family, you have to work a job. But um, it doesn't have to be a curse. And I th- and it feels like the more we move towards some kind of level of consciousness or awareness. Where we not only have these stories, but we we can do what you're doing, and we can sit with the symbology, and we can interpret them in a new way. It seems as if both men and women, we can lift that curse just a little bit for both both sides, where we have an opportunity to just embrace what life is and let it help us grow, rather than constantly struggling against it. And then and then taking the story from a, uh, I think about I think about myths in a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret them and uh, being familiar with Joseph Campbell, you probably know about his ideas of, um, you know, you can, you can interpret myth literally, you can interpret it allegorically, you can interpret it morally, but then you can also interpret it mystically or in a modern sense, like a psychological interpretation. And, and I think that from a literal perspective, obviously these stories, they work to, especially when paired with religion, they work to hold women in a certain space. They kind of restrict them. And just like you're saying, it's as if they don't want, it's as if the, the taken from a literal perspective, women aren't supposed to become conscious uh, because you're not supposed to eat of the tree and the fruit of the tree. But when taken from a psychological perspective, you can realize that, that, Eve, Eve not only represents femininity, she represents the unconscious and the unconscious in this all in, in, in society as a whole is, seems to be what's pushing us towards more consciousness. Uh, and, and from that perspective, it's, it seems that women, <laughs> you know, the, the way that the literal interpretation of this story goes is that, that they did something wrong, but it seems to me that you always have to do something wrong in order to grow and so eve should be partaking of the fruit and and just from my own personal experience uh having a wife and and working in a relationship as a husband the obviously the more conscious that i become the better i've been able to be a be a good husband be a good father but i've also seen that in my wife the more conscious that she's become she she becomes more capable and she becomes more aware and she becomes more Uh, as you were saying, we, we can deal with these things from our past traumas. Um, and we can deal with the way that they affect us now in the, in our, you know, in the here and now, especially from an emotional perspective. So yeah, I feel like, I feel like I'm just rambling now, but, uh, it's just beautiful how, how you're able to take all these different symbols and connect them and that, uh, that femininity is so important that it's like it's it's this process that just exists this uh the fruit and the tree and the you know it's it seems like the same thing as the snake shedding its skin or or you know consuming its own tail it's just this cycle that just goes mm-hmm. and goes and uh we can either we can either just fall into it from a literal perspective or we can see the story for what it's what it's trying to accomplish, which is that level of awareness inside of us.
1: Thank you, Josh, for bringing these in, yes. Um, So to to kind of touch on some things that you mentioned as well, the punishment, right, for both, um, well, the three of them, Adam, Eve, and the snake, it's very much related to suffering. It's not that now women will have childbirth, but it's now that they will suffer in childbirth. It's not that Adam now needs to work the, the punishment, is that he will suffer the pain of work. So we kind of received, and our I believe our society is built on this idea of suffering, suffering to gain things. If you're not suffering, you're doing something wrong. You know, you're not working as hard. If you're not suffering, um, even in relationships, for example, this is not, um, I don't know, just real love, which is absurd in my thought, or like the way I see it. Uh, and that's why I believe there are so many toxic relationships out there, because there's this idea we need to suffer for someone in motherhood. If you are not suffering, if you're not exhausted and dragging yourself, you know, and completely going chaotic, um, you're not being a good mother. You are not doing enough. So there's this idea of suffering. And we have taken, of course, with capitalism and the whole um, evolution, we have taken it to the extreme. And now the world is suffering. We're all kind of suffering. There are so many syndromes out there. Um, And I I believe, as you were saying, it's time to transform this. Martin Shaw says it very beautifully that there is a difference between having a job and having work. I see the work that I do as work, not as a job. And maybe it's also because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm kind of self-employed and I enter partnerships and projects, but still it's very much like I dictate where I go with my work. But I also see it as work that I will do my whole life until there's no retirement for me. I love my work. I think it would only enhance with time, with maturity, with experience, Instead of seeing as, you know, a job I do from this time to this time, and then I close it and I complain it with others how much I've I've worked that day. Um, so I think it's also about transforming that work in itself. It's not bad work. It's actually very rewarding. It can give us purpose. It can give us meaning in life. It can um, support ourselves and others. And I think the big question is how can we have work that fulfills us? And to fulfill others, you know, maybe meaning building a life with meaning instead of a life that is meaningless um, is around that. And of course, people will find this in different ways. There are women, for example, that will find meaning through motherhood, or that will find, you know, that and and motherhood is work, right? And there are many other areas of work that are not considered work that also needs to be elevated, I believe. One of the other things you mentioned that I thought it was interesting to point out, it was Eve as unconscious. And I think that's a great way to see it as well, especially if we're looking from this uh, lens of all genders, because it could also be Eve as the feminine that exists within all of us, regardless of gender. The archetypal force of the feminine, one that is connected to um, the pursuit of consciousness, of intuition, of being generous, of being nourishing. We all, regardless of gender, have this archetypal force within us. My work, when I say woman and mythology, focused on myths for women, is not just because we look very much in the archetypal force of the feminine, but also of the masculine. How can the archetypal force of the masculine within women serve us? And we also try to dismantle and transform what we call the tyrant masculine into the masculine that is the man with the heart, the, the masculine we have within us that serves our feminine force. Because the tyrant masculine that we also all have. Um, it's the it's that internal force that enslaves us and makes us do, do, do. You cannot rest, you cannot do this, that dictates where our creative lives go. Um, so how can we use the masculine within in a way that serves us? And I also believe, and I know that there's many work with men being done on this, on how can they retrieve their feminine archetypal force. As well, so Adam and Eve could be seen in that way as well, Eve as this feminine within us all. Um, mm-hmm. And just to say, you just quickly mentioned the serpent again. So, just say that yes, the Oroboros comes into play, you know with the symbolism of the of the serpent there, the snake or the dragon eating its tail, the shedding of its skin, this idea of. Uh, renovation of transformation that the snake brings so entering imagine receiving information from that entering a conversation with the snake it's getting into in touch with a part of our psyche a part of our soul that brings us these um, ideas insights these hunches towards transformation towards renewal
0: yeah um I think that, given the the place where we are in the world today, that snake, that Eurobore, it's uh, we're at a very interesting point because the very fact that you and I are having this conversation at such like an analytical level, um, there's like a lot of I have a lot of passion for it. You have a lot of passion. There's excitement. It's fun for me. Uh, this kind of this conversation, like you were saying, it's not it's it's my work, but I think of it as the work. Uh, from like a mystical perspective, right? I do it because I love it, but it's also this process that's taking place where we are in a <laughs> we're in a point where the snake is about to eat its tail again, meaning that or it's a, it's like shedding its skin because we have this myth that got us here, especially in, you know, speaking in the western world of of this judeo-christian myth that's got us to this point and now we are we're we're shedding it we're we're letting it go in a in a sense that we're letting go of the literal and when we let go of that literal uh for a lot of people you know for for somebody like me who went through I was raised in a very religious household a very strict literal religion and so to let that story go is a very painful process because it's letting go of the framework of your existence it's letting go of everything but what's beautiful about that is that is that it just starts over. And so in this process, not, all, not only are we letting it go, but we're starting the next story, or we're, we're interpreting it anew to figure out what the next phase is gonna be. Um, but I, I wanna jump back to uh, what you were talking about with suffering, because part of this transformation that the world's going through is this, this analysis that we're talking about, it's not just taking place in the Western world, we're not just analyzing our stories and our our fairy tales, our myths, but we're also looking a lot, excuse me, we're looking a lot into the Eastern world. And when you talk about suffering, the way you framed it, I had, I don't know if I've really thought about it in those terms, but I think, I think you framed it really well, that suffering was the punishment, but that, that that's like, you don't have to take that from a literal perspective. Now in the East In the Eastern world though, suffering was, it's just like the punishment for existing, as if just for simply existing, you have to suffer. And so from that perspective, the the Buddha, when he sat beneath the Bodhi tree, what he was trying to do was abolish suffering within himself. He's like trying to get to a state where there is no suffering. Whereas wait, I, I think we're doing the same thing in the West. We're trying to get to a state where there is no suffering. It's just that they want, the in the East, they want to do it through letting go of all desire. And in the West, we want to get to a point where we can actually control it. And it's this work where we're like putting in all this work, 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 trying to figure this out. Uh, But if we can just let go of some of the ideas and some of the stories and some of the requirements of those stories, just existing in the moment, doing something that you want to do, that moves you towards consciousness, it's as if you have already released yourself from the suffering. Because if you enjoy it, if you appreciate it, then, you know, there's always gonna be physical pain. There's always gonna be a little bit of boredom. There's always gonna be things like this that we can't avoid. But the very way that we frame those things, the way we think about them, that's where the suffering comes in. And I think that this uh, this, analysis and and this merger of these different ideas is actually moving us towards a different state as as a human as like a species as humans and a big part of that is what is the the, the work that you're doing where we're realizing the the perspective of the man of men and women and we're realizing the inherent archetypes that we have inside of us that are both masculine and feminine and how we need to you know we need to balance them out and we need to they need to be there for each other with not one or the other being more more dominant in a sense we need men who can who can have ma- uh, feminine moments and we need women who can have masculine moments uh something like that I guess. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I do. I truly believe that. I believe that all genders should harvest um, the tools, the power of both their feminine and masculine and integrate them. And rather than, oh, I'm having a feminine, just only feminine here space, but one that is fully integrated, it will become actually something very new, something different. I always say that to my, my participants in sessions when we're, we're working with these two ideas, rather than keeping them separate, the feminine and the masculine, it's really about bringing it together and transforming a new. Just like when men and women have a child, this child is this new self that is being born in the soul, in the psyche. In myth, when we see um, someone pregnant, a child being born, this is a new self is being born. Um. Another way of seeing it as well is if you mix the color blue and the color yellow, it will become the color green. It is not going to become a bluish yellow. You know what I mean? It's a whole new thing that comes forward. So it's a new self that is born once feminine and masculine are integrated. Um, And I love that. I think we should be walking around with this integrated self. But of course, much more difficult uh, done than said And uh, it's, it's a process, no, it's really a walk. It's a, it's a work of a lifetime. And uh, to bring to the thing you were talking about suffering, unfortunately, I think our world is built on it, not just the West, the East as well. And now like I've lived for two years in Thailand and then five years in China. Um, So, and what I've seen was that actually the Christian world is present there very much. Um I've seen as well capitalism in a way while well, China in a way that is like actually ahead of what we experience in the West. Uh, When it comes to consumerism, when it comes to, you know, you're suffering. Well, by this, fill the empty holes with this, with this material thing. That is so I think even capitalism is built on this idea of suffering. We're all suffering. And what's going to heal us, what's going to fix us, it's consuming all these things. And as you said, there is a space for suffering. Suffering can lead to, well, I see it as transformative pain. You know, it's almost necessarily necessary. But of course, I am saying this from a privileged perspective and talking about a suffering that is almost... Like um a discomfort that moves us. I'm not talking about a systematic suffering that allowed slavery, for example, because that was also another form of seeing suffering, right? and, and it, together with this religion, together with this myth of Adam and Eve, allowed kind of slavery to take place is they can suffer. They need to suffer the they don't know God. they need to suffer um, the toil of their work. And uh, then it would come in with the missionaries and all of that. But just to pause there, I do think that, yeah, it's about transforming that idea of suffering as you were. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. The myth of Yahweh or Elohim in the West, uh, yeah, there's a lot of suffering involved, uh, both, both from the way that you described it, uh, you know, in terms of where we've gotten in, in, from a consumerism perspective, but also from things like slavery. And then just simply the idea of proselytizing. And, uh, you know, initially that started off as as conquering. It was war. And then eventually, you know, it, it kind of transitioned into something that looked more like missionary work. But it is interesting. It, it is this interesting idea that the heathen the unbeliever needs to suffer until they come into the light and uh yeah
1: and there's a glamour as well a glamour and suffering
0: ah I yeah i think there is yeah
1: i think people yeah. they want to to be the one who suffers sometimes you know and yeah. it's really about how can we move beyond this archetypal um idea of survival also because if we want to step into the archetype that is thriving we need to move beyond the victim archetype the one that is only surviving and stop feeling this suffering you know transform this pain be able to hold our scars in ways that are well that hold grief that honor them but also in a way that doesn't hold us back in a way that it's in the past
0: Yeah, that's really well said. Those ideas come from, uh, from, uh, the book, women who run with the wolves as well. Right. That's in there. And, um, if I'm being honest, if I'm being like really kind of just going to be honest with you, Maria, when I started this podcast, I think I, I started with this deep desire to just have genuine conversations with people. But early on, I was still learning. And early on I was still carrying some, like I was still projecting some of those archetypes. And so I was, you know, uh, coming from a place where I was just recently realizing things about my life and I was definitely playing the victim card. And there's times when I look back, even with guests in this podcast and I go like, ah, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, you know, showed up, I shouldn't have shown up to that conversation wearing that badge you know, looking at myself uh, as some victim or looking at myself as some survivor. Uh, And it's this weird thing, because this kind of circles back to this idea of suffering. Doing this podcast for me, when I'm in this moment right now, having a conversation with you, there's very little suffering. It's, It's like, wow, Maria is so smart. And she has so much insight. And I just feel lucky to sit here and listen to people like this but there's also been times where i've uh i haven't been able to experience it in that way because it's it's as if i just wanted to get something else off of my chest and when i say that this podcast or or you know the things that i do i call it the work from a if you look at religion from a literal perspective there's this idea of the work you know when i was when I was raised in a religious setting and we were supposed to be very missionary oriented, this work is like, you're, like you were saying, like, uh, or maybe I was saying, but bringing, bringing people into the fold or bringing them into this level of consciousness that we have, or this truth that we have. But now I see it very differently. Rather than looking at it from a literal perspective, I see the work as this psychological process. And in the modern world where these religions are falling away, the work has become not some kind of thing that God ordains, but it's this process that each one of us needs to go through to move from and it may be that we need to move into that victim archetype first, because there has to be some kind of awareness mm-hmm. of where we've come from and what trauma we've experienced. But once you're there, then the work is to is to move beyond it, right? To move. Like you're saying, not just from victim and survivor, but moving into a state of thriving. And I can just, I can just say that doing this alone, doing this podcast, having conversations with people like you, where I have to prepare and I have to uh, sit down and and I get to sit down and listen. I felt myself, unintentionally, I felt myself move through these processes. And I think that the way that I see the modern world, and this isn't just my idea. You know, you can find this idea probably in any mythologist will tell you this. Um, And I've I've read Joseph Campbell and Karen Armstrong and Carl Jung, they'll all say this, but the modern method of moving through these stages in life is throwing yourself into some kind of creative process. Because we don't have the rituals that ancient societies had in the same way that they had them. We have this new emerging thing where we're all supposed to be individuals. And so the only way for us to move through those processes is to actually go out and try to create something. And it's through this creative process that the modern human moves from that victim stage where suffering is suffering into a thriving stage where suffering is the work.
1: I love that. Josh, thank you for sharing that with me and your personal journey as well, you know, with this with this space with this container and um, in your life. And as you said, yes, we we need to go through the survival phase. We need to see as well. There is a part as well for seeing ourselves as victims, understanding what happened. But then I think it's also about, you know, standing up, taking responsibility for our role in that situation, whatever it was um, or not. And just really being able to hold our scars in different ways. And as you mentioned, yes, this is from Women Who Run With The Wolves. It appears in several stories or so several chapters. Uh, the one that I think it's very strong, the, st- the two stories that kind of hold these ideas very strongly is The Ugly Duckling, who is a, and Christian Andersen. So basically a story that was also given to children worldwide and most listeners might be familiar with it. Um, it's a story of suffering in the beginning. There is there a victim of being harassed, of being bullied, of being an outcast, being exiled over and over again. And then finally, when it discovers itself as Swan, when it discovers its tribe, its community, its people, um, there is, in the way that Clarissa Pincolistes brings her literary version of the Ugly Duckling, there is a moment the duckling there, it questions itself. Will these swans also kill me? Will these swans also harass me? And it is that moment that show us it is time for this duckling to live in that place of swan, to live in that place of thriving. It has found its community, has found its place. It has matured and now has its strong wings with the ability to fly and all. And it's still for a second there in that survival archetype. And she brings in the interpretation in the commentary how it's important for us to be able to make that shift, to be able to walk. But that said, what has happened to this duckling in the past, uh, even a very traumatic experience with the mother rejecting it, it's important too. And it's not about repressing it, forgetting it completely, But in a different story, um, in the story of the woman with the hair of gold, that appears. And it's really about holding our scars, healing them, instead of being open wounds that are constantly bleeding and not allowing us to experience anything else. Bleeding in the outer world and bleeding in the psyche as well, in our inner world it's a la- it's doing the healing process, and that could look different for every person. No, I always say there are as many ways of doing this as there are women in this world. So as there are people in this world, could be through therapy, it could be through spending time in nature, it could be through relationships as well, through the creative life, as you mentioned, through the creative process, um, and then heal it. So they are not open wounds that are bleeding, that they become scars that we carry with actually some pride, you know, knowing that they are there. We're able to talk about them if we want to share. They're kind of sacred as well. They're not secrets. So it's not about sharing with everyone, putting it on our Facebook status, but um, they're not secrets anymore, shameful secrets we carry. But they become these sacred learnings of our, of our journey and uh, we can then, I think that is when we own our life. To own our life, it's a very powerful thing, especially for women. I think owning our life is a right given to men when they are born and like most rights, women have to claim it, fight for it. And the, the right to own our life is something we need to fight kind of tooth and nail for it because it's given to us so many limitations at birth and the way that we are raised sometimes by our parents by the religion by school by culture um, that we need to kind of dismantle all of that to feel we own it that we we can claim that and to connect with the creative process you said what Clarissa calls the creative life That's such an important pathway to owning our life. And she says the creative life feeds us in many ways, mental, spiritual, physical, emotional, and financial. So if one wants liberation, emancipation, this idea of owning our life, finding the creative life, kind of searching for the impulses that lead us to create, it's a way to go, it's a good start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for a lot of people, me included, it's it's going back to myth, uh, this idea of being reborn, this idea of whether it's resurrection or reincarnation, or even if you look at the Christian sense of baptism and being reborn, you become like a child again. And these impulses and these intuitions come back to you. And this time, instead of suppressing them because of what culture said, what your mom and dad said, you know, what education said this time, instead of suppressing them, you just listen to them and you follow them. And that may, for some people, that may be, you know, uh, for me, it's writing and it's having conversations, but for some people, it may be trail running. And for some people, it may be, you know, hot air balloons. It could be anything, but just this, this sense that, uh, that, yeah, I'm going to claim what's my, what's my, It's like a birthright. It's like you were born with these things inside of you and they're yours. And to deny them is to deny a part of you. Just like you were saying, I love the way you were talking about having scars and being proud of them and being able to carry them and talk about them. In the same way, uh, when we go through this process, I think that what we're like, We've talked a lot about consciousness and we've talked about integration. We've talked about individuation. We've talked about healing. And and you could say growing up, maturing, all of these things in a sense are synonymous where what you do is you go through this process of accepting the story, you grow up, and then you start to see how the story impacts you. And you look around, just like we were saying from the very beginning of this conversation, you look around and you see which myths are helping you and which myths are holding you back. And then you slowly choose which ones you're gonna follow. And the ones you're gonna follow allow you to live a life that's balanced between existing in the real world with all these other people, these 8 billion people that are on the planet and existing in this world where you're not denying yourself and you're living true to yourself. Uh, and, and I think you're right about women. I think that men, when it comes to men, we have this I, this like I always I I often frame it like this and it uh it may seem reductive, but I'm not trying to make it simple, but women are born with the ability to reproduce. And by the time they hit, you know, adolescence or or you know, become adults, they they have this ability to reproduce, which means that they have the ability to to create the next generation of the tribe of us and so in a sense they're inherently valuable it, at the same time men we don't men are of no use to the society unless they go out and and either they create in, in the modern sense they create but really from a from an ancient biological perspective men are of value if they can hunt and gather if they can provide or if they can protect and because of that y- where we are now, it really does seem like women they're still kind of just expected to be in that space or in that role. And so inherently it's as if men are given the world to go and figure it out, do whatever they want. and women are like, well, here's what you're supposed to do. Uh, but I, I you know what you're saying makes a lot of sense is that if women can can work through whatever that story is, That their group, their culture, their religion is giving them and that they can claim something more than, you know, it's always about like, what is, what does the tribe want from you and what do you want for yourself? And you've got to have some kind of balance there. And you've got to, in order to do that, you've really got to, you have to, (laughs) you have to heal your scars, which means becoming conscious and accepting who you are and how that's going to fit into the world.
1: Yes. One of the things you mentioned that kind of just brought a thought to me is that that is why this idea that women's role in the world is to reproduce, it is so shocking to the world and so upsetting to the world when a woman says they don't want to be mothers, they don't want to have children. And it's so hard for a woman sometimes to claim that as well. I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to have children because it goes against this very ingrained idea that that is our sole responsibility in the world. And then also it opens, having children or not, it opens a door for um, our other desires of creating work, of having a creative life, of going out and about and doing our thing. Also being like, this is not your space. You cannot do that, go back to the home. Go back to that one responsibility that was given to you biologically and then we're kind of also in that ways a little bit trapped but i think that there is great work being done i think a lot of rights have been achieved yet having said that not fast enough not good enough there's still a lot to be um still a lot to be built
0: yeah absolutely it's existence seems to be one big story. And as, as much as we would like to imagine that we're at the end of it, we're actually just right in the middle and uh, Mm -hmm. we're all just kind of along for the ride. Um, Maria, we are up, we are at an hour. This flew by, it flew by so fast. Um, And so I want to be respectful of your time, but I really appreciate you, uh, you know, jumping on here with me and sharing this information that you have, this is this passion that you have and uh, the way that it's, the way that it can be helpful, um, especially for women, like I, just in my own life, the a couple of friends, my daughter, my wife, just seeing how these kind of ideas can impact them and enable them to become more conscious and to grasp more of their life, it really is powerful. And I think it really is the direction that this whole world needs to be going, because uh, it is time for us to rewrite the story and and to become who we who we want to be to build a world where suffering may exist but only kind of only first first level suffering and not that second level where it's us telling telling ourselves something about the pains that we feel um so again i, I really appreciate it and thank you so much i want to share this quote that's on your website it's uh i guess it's it's just i'm quoting your website but it says Myths and stories are treasure troves of wisdom, offering a rich and valuable, valuable framework for contextualizing our personal journeys. They can offer valuable lessons, archetypes, and symbols that can help us make sense of our experience and find meaning in our lives. And uh, it's readily apparent that you've taken this to heart and that you're living this life where myth, the myths have come to life for you and they're giving you meaning. And uh, I think it's awesome that you're sharing it with other people.
1: Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for inviting me for the space, for the wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it too. Time flew by on my side as well. And, uh, yeah, I loved it.
0: Yeah. Um, before we jump off, is there, uh, do you want to share just really quickly if people are interested in your work? I know there's so many topics we didn't even get to. I wanted to talk about your book. Um, but you, you, uh, where can people find you? Where can they find your work?
1: Come find me on my website, as you mentioned. So that's womenandmythology.com. Maybe you can add it to the description of the episode. And uh, I also post uh, uh, sometimes, I try to do it daily uh, on Instagram. I think it's a fun platform. I've built some wonderful connections there. It's a little way of getting a little bit closer to the community. So I share some books, share some ideas there, a little bit of our daily life as well, kind of behind the scenes. So, if you're interested in that and you like the platform, um, it's Woman and Mythology on Instagram.
0: Okay, awesome.
1: Thank you, Josh.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Maria. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast, exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. Thanks again.